This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Later on in this episode, we'll have a special discount offer code just for Discovering Trek listeners and discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. A church, a red angel, and a deepening mystery. Episode two of Star Trek Discovery kicked off all kinds of new questions about the mysterious red birth and the red angel, while at the same time giving perhaps the most Star Trek-y story of Star Trek in the last 20 years of Star Trek. What does that actually mean? Well, let's get right into it, shall we? My name is Dan Davidson, and we are Discovering Trek. Welcome one and all to Discovering Trek, the Star Trek Discovery Companion, presented by Fansets. Episode 2 took us boldly where we thought no man had gone before, but as we saw, the crew was in for a bit of a surprise as they sauntered, or should I say spore jumped, over to the old Beta Quadrant this week. As always, this is the premier podcast for the most in-depth discussion and analysis about the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, entitled New Eden, And this episode gave us something with Discovery that we really haven't seen before in the series, a deep Star Trek story that had all kinds of religious connotations and moments that really made you stop and think. Plus the added bonus of adventure, special effects, humor, all that good stuff. In fact, there's just so much to talk about it this week that at this time, I need to bring in some help to break it all down. You know... If I were stranded in the Beta Quadrant with no technology, he is the one person I could count on to fly on in on a starship, give me that giant Everlast battery power cell thingy, and keep things running. As always, he is my special friend, my brother in Trek, and my amazing number one. He is Bill Smith. And Bill, I'd say also that you're my Red Angel, but at the moment, I really don't know if that guy or gal is good or bad. Well, thanks, buddy. It's good to be here. I, I do look good in red, if that helps. Um, <laughs> but there's also red shirts in Star Trek, so um, I don't know yet if it's good or bad either. For now, we're just going to enjoy it. Uh, great to be here. Happy to be back. Um, what an episode. I can't wait to dive mm. in on this. It was it was amazing. Uh, we're going to get into all kinds of details about it shortly, of course, but uh, this was one that had a lot of people online uh, and in my house going, oh, my God, this is what Star Trek is all about. So um, we've got some uh, we've got a spe- very special guest joining us this week to talk about New Eden. Why don't you tell us uh, about who that is and uh, we'll welcome him right on in. Dan, he's a longtime podcaster and the host of Mega Podtastic, where he and guests look at the best and worst of pop culture and media. He's the aptly named Crazy Joe, and we welcome him to Discovering Trek for his first appearance. Joe, great to have you aboard, buddy. This is long overdue. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. I do have to correct you, though. Last week at the end of your show, you said I'm not a Herbert. I am totally a Herbert. <laughs> <laughs> You're not to us. We reach, brother. We reach. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, Joe. It's uh, crazy, Joe. Did you like Joe or crazy, Joe? Let's just get that right out of the ah, way. Joe works. <laughs> okay. I've been told I'm not crazy enough for the name. People have been like, "You got to do something crazy." You say you're crazy, Joe, but you're too normal and well adjusted. So I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's great to have you here. Finally, uh, like Bill said, it's been a long time coming, and we're great to have you here to talk about. Really just an amazing episode. Um, But before we get to that, uh, we do have a lot to break down and discuss. So, Bill, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with us to give us their thoughts about New Eden? 
Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Hailing frequencies are open, Dan, and we're transmitting deep into the beta quadrant for humans everywhere. On Twitter, we can be found at Discovering Trek. And on ye old book of faces, we're at facebook.com slash discovering trek. In either place, you can become part of the discussion or even leave us comments, questions, or maybe even your thoughts on who or what the Red Angel might be. Plus, you can send us a voicemail by going directly to our website at trekgeeks.com and clicking on the giant blue button that says send voicemail. Please do remember, though, that any comments you may leave us could be used in a future episode of Discovering Trek. Dan. Well, speaking of comments, gentlemen, I do want to read something that we received in email uh, only yesterday with regards to Discovery because I feel that it speaks volumes as to what we witnessed with Episode 2, and I think a lot of people may feel similarly uh, to our good friend Tim from London. So here I'm going to quote. First and foremost, I'm not a Discovery hater. Now, contrary to what people say, oh, the first season was amazing and it's back, I'd agree for my love of Star Trek, but deep down, that doesn't ring true in my head. There was a couple of episodes that were good, and as a whole, maybe I was 70% there. I wanted to succeed because after Enterprise was canceled, I was a self-confessed weekly checker of new Star Series searches on Google. Now, let's cut to season two of Discovery. The opening of the first episode, uh, I felt something similar in the opening couple of minutes, and then all of a sudden, a wave of newness came upon me. I just didn't know how to take it. Was it a flash of nearly there and the start of something? Now cut to episode two. First thing I noticed was it's directed by Jonathan Frakes. And I've got to say, this was the best episode of Discovery ever. And it's now ranked, if not in my top five, but definitely in my top 10 all-time Star Trek episodes. It had everything. It was Star Trek. That's all I can say. I had tears in my eyes and had to pause three times. Episode three, who knows? But for this one, I'm there. Quote, uh, end quote. Guys, that is exactly what I've been seeing since episode two aired uh, just a couple of days ago. It really, it really was an amazing episode. What do you think, Joe? Well, I've heard a lot of people saying it's the best episode of Discovery. This isn't the first time I've heard that. I don't know that I agree. I really liked it. <clears throat> But I think my favorite episode might still be Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Mm. That was a, probably my favorite episode of the series. But, but you know, no disagreement. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. It was a really good episode. Bill? Yeah, I, I'm right there with Joe. I don't want to take anything away from this episode because it was, it was fantastic. It was a great episode of Star Trek. But I, I think that my favorite still has to be Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. And I think it's followed up closely by Siwi's Pockham Parabellum. Um, uh, there's a lot here. And, and it's like you said, Dan, I've seen this reaction all over the place. I think this is a byproduct of finally getting to break out of what Brian Fuller attempted to architect for season one. You know, he wanted the Klingon war and then he wanted a huge mirror episode arc. And although the mirror episode arc was less than originally planned, it was still fairly sizable. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that we're getting back to the spirit of what Star Trek is. And I, I think that it's proving to a lot of people that, yeah, this, this show absolutely can do it, which is something the three of us have known all along. Yeah, I think what's interesting is it may not be the very best episode of Discovery, but I think it's the most Star Trek episode of Discovery, uh, at least for me. So uh, here we go. Black alert. Black alert. From here on in, this episode of Discovering Trek contains spoilers. 
So if you haven't watched Season 2, Episode 2 of Star Trek Discovery, stop listening right now. Head on over to CBS All Access or wherever you watch Discovery. Watch the episode and then come on back over to Discovering Trek. Failure to do that puts you at risk to find out plot developments and character details for New Eden. Previously on Star Trek Discovery. Oh, Spock. Michael Burnham plays Spock's personal log entry that she discovered aboard the Enterprise for Captain Pike and pulls up Spock's drawing of the red signals. His drawing is almost an exact match for the sensor logs that Pike brought on board the Discovery. Burnham tells Pike she wants to, wait for it, search for Spock. But Pike tells her that he actually knows where Spock is. He's in a mental health facility and he went there by his own request. You know how Spock can be. Michael considers telling Pike that she saw the Red Angel when she was on the asteroid, but she still holds back, not yet sure if she should make that revelation. The bridge calls. It seems they found another red signal. It's too far away for a full scan, so they initiate a quick burst of maximum warp to calculate its location. It's only 150 years away. Oh, and it's in the beta quadrant. Saru says, hey, it's too bad we can't just use the spore drive. And Pike says, well... He can get special dispensation to use it since this mission is of the utmost importance to Starfleet, and they begin to prep to jump to the signal's location. Tilly prepares Stamets for the jump, and he tells her that he saw Hugh Culber in the network, and that Hugh helped guide Discovery home from the Terran Empire. Stamets is concerned about what might happen to him if he were to see him again on the network, but he decides to do the jump anyway. After the jump, Stamets is obviously unnerved and exits the chamber, he that doesn't want to talk to Tilly. On the bridge, hey, there's no damned red thing again. Sensors, however, detect humans, and lots of them. Humans that shouldn't be here this far out in the galaxy. Discovery also detects a distress call that's been transmitting on a loop for over 200 years, but the colony appears to be peaceful and tranquil. Burnham says that the humans on this planet would have arrived during World War III on Earth, a time before there was ever warp drive. Over 11,000 people live on that planet now, some of whom seem to be at a church gathering? These people seem to lack even basic electricity, so General Order 1, the Prime Directive, seems to apply here in Pike's mind. He decides to take Burnham and Awasakun on the landing party. In the shuttle bay, Tilly attempts to carve off a sample of the giant asteroid, but each fragment of it weighs several tons, something she discovers when a piece that she carves off goes rogue and crashes through a small table. Tilly does manage to extract the sample for testing, and she suspends it in an anti-grav unit. The sample discharges some kind of odd energy that throws her across the shuttle bay and leaves her seriously injured. Pike, Burnham, and Owo beam down to the surface, undercover, and make their way to the church. The church itself is 200 years old, and the stained glass windows contain symbols from many of Earth's religions. As Pike begins to read from the Bible on the altar, it appears they've adapted their own form of worship from these various religions. Burnham also notices the red angel depicted in one of the panes of stained glass. The doors to the church open, and a man asks who they are, and... Hey, why aren't you guys in the fields? Pike says they're not from there, and the man takes them to meet the All-Mother. Well, the All-Mother recounts the history of the colony, and how an angel appeared and delivered them all to this planet, Terralesia. 
She goes on to explain that they created their religion from the faith of those who arrived and that the church was apparently transported along with them. They used to have electricity, but they've been unable to restore it since their power cell failed. There's also a broken helmet camera from a soldier who was in the church, but they're unable to access the footage. Back on Discovery, Tilly wakes up in sickbay to a female crewman that's been observing her. Saru and Dr. Pollard enter, and Saru gives Tilly quite the dressing down. She could have easily been killed trying to extract a sample from the asteroid on her own. Tilly understands, but she explains that the stone may help them find a way to replace Stamets in the spore drive interface. Saru tells Tilly that she needs to learn to ask for help, something that he had to learn for himself. We have to learn to care for ourselves before we can care for others. Saru is then summoned to the bridge. Sensors are detecting a massive spike in ionizing radiation in the planet's atmosphere. The cause is a disruption in the gravitational stability of the planet's rings. Radiation from the rings will reach the planet's surface, and there will be an extinction-level event. The colonists and the landing party are all in danger. Saru theorizes that they've been brought there for a reason, to save those people on the surface. They can't beam anyone up, they can't communicate with anyone on the surface, and they can't send a shuttle. Discovery needs a plan, and they need it now. Back at New Eden, the landing party looks for a distress beacon so they can turn it off. Burnham thinks that leaving the inhabitants there is the wrong call, and she and Pike debate whether the Prime Directive really applies here. Owasakun discovers that the distress call was rigged to continue regardless of the battery being dead. The landing party is then approached by the man they met in the church earlier, Jacob, and he accuses them of being from Earth. The colonists had believed Earth to be destroyed in the war, but he and his family had held out hope that people like them would come and rescue them. Pike assures them that he's mistaken, and he looks to usher the landing party out of there, but Jacob uses a grenade to stop them from leaving. He locks them in the basement of the church, and he's taken their communicators, tricorders, and phasers. They escape, and Pike reminds Burnham and Owo that they are bound by General Order 1. No exceptions. Tilly talks to herself in sickbay trying to work through the problem at hand. She might have had some caffeine, allegedly. She turns around and sees crewman May again as she still tries to talk herself into a solution to rescue the planet. She needs a massive gravitational field and realizes while talking to May that she can use the asteroid in the shuttle bay and its gravity. She runs out of sickbay and heads straight to the bridge. Tilly tells Saru that she's got a plan and she relays her plan to the bridge crew. The ship would have to essentially do donuts within the rings of the the planet and use the asteroid to draw the radiation back away. Well, and within the next two minutes. But piloting in that situation appears impossible until Stamets announces he can do it by jumping the ship with a spore drive and they have to do it quickly. On Terralicia, Jacob presents the landing party's items to the others and tells them that they are from Earth. Jacob is chastised by the All-Mother for what he did. A little girl picks up a phaser and accidentally sets it to overload, not knowing what she's done. Pike races to her, grabs the phaser, and jumps on it to protect her from the blast. He's in trouble. He's seriously injured, and he's going to die if he doesn't get help. Burnham maintains their cover by saying they need to get back to the church and hope for another deliverance. Discovery jumps into the rings of the planet, and Detmer begins to do the donuts as they tow the asteroid behind them with a tractor beam. The debris from the rings is pulled away and the gravitational force of the asteroid and the planet is safe. Back at New Eden, the landing party makes it back to the church and goes inside, closing the door. Jacob wants to be let in and goes back inside despite the All-Mother's protests. They walk in on the landing party being beamed away, which the All-Mother takes to be the angel saving them. 
although Jacob knows better. Saru thanks Tilly for her actions, saying she saved the landing party and the planet, and they decide that it's best for her to go back to sickbay. May says, way to go, Stilly, as Tilly enters the turbo lift. This seems really familiar to Tilly, and as the doors close, she says, wait, are you... Pike awakens in sickbay. He's alive, but he is in rough shape. He's got severe damage to his ribs, and he's lucky to have made it at all. Tilly goes through her yearbook and her quarters and finds a video from someone else in her past that called her Stilly. May is May Ahern, a former schoolmate. Tilly asks the computer to locate her on the ship, but May isn't on the manifest. Tilly searches the Starfleet database, and it turns out that May is deceased. Yet, Tilly has been seeing to her and talking to her. A recovering Pike is in his quarters when Burnham arrives and enters. He thanks Burnham for following his orders, even after he was injured. She explains that she has learned what not following orders can lead to. Burnham then finally tells Pike about the angel she saw on the asteroid. She knows that it's important, but she doesn't necessarily believe in its divine properties. She does still believe, though, that they should have told Jacob the truth, but Pike continues to protest in favor of General Order 1. Michael pleads her case and explains that the helmet cam Jacob talked about from the day they were taken could give them some answers. On Terralicia, Jacob goes down to the church basement and there discovers Pike, in uniform, who explains the truth. Pike admits that they are from Earth and tells him about the Federation. He also tells him that they're unable to intervene in their evolution on this planet. Jacob thanks Pike for giving him all he's ever looked for, the truth about Earth, and he shuts off the distress call. Pike offers Jacob a trade, a brand new power cell in exchange for the busted helmet cam. Pike transports up to the Discovery in full view of Jacob, who is in amazement at the beam out. He connects the power cell, and the church lights up New Eden like a beacon. Pike works on the broken helmet camera to access the footage. The footage shows the people in the church as war rages around them. The Red Angel appears to the people in the church, and, at that moment, the video comes to an abrupt end. I can see you as one of those guys in commercials in the future, Bill, that does the inner worlds because your your recaps are just awesome, man. Nicely done. <laughs> in a world where Bill does recaps. <laughs> so it, it's funny. I actually asked Sean Cochran if he would write my recap for Discovering Trek this week. Uh, <laughs> no response, which tells me that um, uh, I was on my own and I hope I did the episode justice, Dan. You did it justice, my good man. I like it, as always. I mean, you haven't gone wrong yet. I mean, but there's always a first time. Anyway, uh, so, so let's get some uh, high-level thoughts on this episode, guys. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? I think we know the answer. Joe, let's start with you. Uh, no spoilers yet. We'll get into discussion points in a moment. But uh, what's your overall take on the episode, bud? I I, I really dug it. It was really good. Uh, I don't think it was perfect. I've, I think people liked it more than I did online, seeing the online reaction, people really went nuts for it. And I thought it was good. It did feel a little bit derivative of things we've seen before, like, hey, we're out in space and we found this colony of humans that we don't know how, how they got there. Uh, not taken away from the episode, because it was still really well done, but it, it did feel like, eh, this is kind of something we've seen before, in a way. But uh, but they've, they added enough uh, new twists to it that, you know, very solid. Very, I'd say A minus, maybe mm-hmm. maybe an A. Okay, no, that's very good for me. I um, I give it two huge thumbs up, and and I've said it, I've, I've said it at the beginning. To me, this may be the best 
Star Trek story that I've seen in my adult life. We've seen great Star Trek stories. We've seen amazing episodes. But the story in this rang so much Star Trek to me. Uh, there was so much to chew on. There were so many aspects of Trek in the story, questions about morality and religion. I could just go on and on, uh, but I won't. I, I just thought it was absolutely amazing. Bill? You know, this week, Dan, it's, it's, it's another thumbs up for me and way up at that. You know, I feel like this is an episode in spirit and tone. Uh, feels like it could have been taken straight out of either the original Star Trek or the Next Generation. Right. Um, yeah. Th- there, th- there is the the slight tropiness of hey, we found a bunch of humans that aren't supposed to be here, but um, not quite a godlike being, but kind of a godlike being, which is kind of interesting. So they make it just different enough to keep the mystery of the Red Angel going and to make it its own while still, you know, making it very Star Trek and feel and tone. So uh, definitely thumbs up. Trainees, to the briefing room. Well, that's a great, that's a great jumping off point, the, the Red Angel. Let's start our discussion points uh, on that being. We've now seen flashes of it several times in the first two episodes. Um, there's absolutely no questions answered as to what this is, who it is, what its role is, and what it's trying to do. I don't know. Let's let's just discuss that for a minute. What's going on with this teleportation of all these people from World War Three to this beta quadrant planet um, that we saw in New Eden? I, I'm completely lost in the story right now. I have no answers. Uh, let's start with you, Bill. Any anything? I mean, I know we, we could put this as a long range scan, but I don't think that we need to do that for this particular part of the conversation. It's just amazing that they're writing this into the story and leaving it so unanswered, even though it is just the second episode of the season. Well, you know, to speak directly to your point, I mean, I know for a fact that one of your favorite television shows of all time is Lost and Lost <laughs> was famous for asking more questions than it ever answered. I don't think that's what's going to happen with Star Trek Discovery this season, but I do think that they're making us ask these questions on purpose to sort of perpetuate the mystery. I, I, my my main question is why just that church full of people? Sure. You know, why were why was that church picked up and transported all the way to this this place in the Beta Quadrant? I got nothing. Um and then a, a colony, you know, was allowed to thrive. You know, uh, I'm sure millions and millions of people died in World War III uh, as far as Star Trek history goes. So why that grouping of of people? I can't say for sure. Um, I have my theories as to what or who the Red Angel may be, which we'll discuss in long-range scans. But uh, as for now, buddy, I'm as much in the dark as you are. Yeah, I'm usually in the dark, and this is certainly no exception. Joe, <laughs> um, we've... Um, you know, we've seen godlike beings, as as Bill mentioned before, uh, in Star Trek in the past. Uh, you think that this is one of those circumstances, or do you think that there's going to be some kind of explanation that's believable, not in the divine way, uh, as the season unfolds? Well, hmm, that's that's tough because um, some of what I say, like you said, may get into the long range scans a little bit, but um, we've. We've heard a lot. We've heard a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and you got to wonder if you put it all together uh, where they're going. But uh, we we heard famously that there were a lot of reshoots because um, apparently they they really got into Pike being Catholic early on in the season, and then they had to do reshoots because there was some objection to that behind the scenes. 
So, and we uh, we still see a trace of it in the episode that that Pike is, you know, he seems to be a, a bit religious. Maybe they toned it down more than was originally intended, but uh, it seems that they're really building a faith versus science story here. So the the question is, what's going to win out in the end? You've got Burnham saying things like, "Well, uh, did you guys consider um, people who use science as their their?" Um, their faith is that uh, do you have a, a scientific explanation for this? So in the end, I guess the question is 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 the result is the end going to be a uh, something very explainable by science or is it going to be something that's still a little mysterious and still a little um, spiritual? And I think whatever wherever you go with that, you you have a a good chance of, of alienating part of the audience. So I, I don't know. I'm really lost. I'm curious to see where they're going to take it. I'm excited to see where they're going to take it, but I've got, I got no clues. You know, Joe, you bring up a good point with the, uh, with the Pike character. I thought that what they achieved in the end was at least a decent balance of, you know, the, the future of humanity as, as far as Star Trek. And then, you know, uh, the, the sort of secular, uh, beliefs of uh, of those people with faith. I mean, they at least painted the picture that Pike's father, you know, was a, a student of these types of things. And they even demonstrated that Pike himself was aware at least of the liturgy, and you know, it, especially when he came back with an, and also with you, which mm. you would only expect somebody that understood that stuff to come back with. And, and as a Catholic, I did turn to my wife and say, ooh, doesn't he know that it's changed to and with your spirit? <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe it's changed back in that time. You don't know. Um, <laughs> True. So I thought it was at least interesting that they gave Pike that depth. I mean, I like the way they keep rounding out the character in the last two episodes by making him more, well, human. Um, but I thought that was an interesting facet for sure. The the Pike character in just two episodes has become such a complex character. And I mean that in the most positive of ways, he's become one of the most popular characters when you look at things going on in social media. And I thought that this episode was really interesting in that we've never really been able to see different layers of Pike, but that, and also with you line, I was like, Whoa, this is a heavy religion versus science episode. And I thought that the way that they did it, especially in that scene really worked well. So I'm sure we're going to get back into that uh, as we continue our discussion. Now we're talking about science a little bit. Let's talk about our favorite science officer from the enterprise who we have yet to see on discovery season two and that's Spock, but we did get a little bit more information about why we're not seeing him. He's not just on leave guys. He's locked up. He's in an institution. This can't happen. This was never talked about before in Star Trek canon. What's going on, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> there, I, I got nothing. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating element to mm-hmm. add to Spock. I, I, I could see him doing that. I mean, you know, when Spock comes down with the with the pond far, <laughs> I say it like it's some kind of affliction. But um, when when he goes through pond far, the first thing he wants to be, you know, have happen is to be locked away so that nobody else sees him. Right. So I can see Spock you know, doing or saying that he wanted to be committed, you know, uh, just, just to get through this thing, because I can imagine that his brain and his emotions, cause he does have them are in disarray. So I, uh, I, I we know we're going to see him there at some point, um, you know, cause we've seen it in the trailer and in the previews, but I, uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to coin a phrase by this development. 
I wonder, I, I think the answer is no to this, but it popped into my head as you were talking. Do you think that his desire to be um, uh, put in an institution for the time being is 100% his own decision? Or do you think he could be being influenced by whatever's going on with the Red Angel, with the Red Burst, Joe? Huh, it's uh, it's interesting. Oh, first of all, just just speaking to Canon, one thing we know about Spock is he does not like to talk about his past. Mm-hmm. He doesn't tell you things happened in his past unless it's relevant to the situation. So I could see why he wouldn't just in an episode of the original series spurt out. By the way, Captain, you know I was committed once. <laughs> so I get that, but um, I, I yeah I, I think it definitely has something to do with the Red Angel. What I I don't know. I I have some predictions that I'll save for the long range scans that are. By the way, prediction on my predictions, they're going to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Ours are too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, it's it's got to be. I mean, you can't just throw an, an element to the story in like that and not have it tie in directly with what's going on in the story. So it's got to be connected to the Red Angel. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Keeping on Spock for just a second, I did like how, again, we're seeing this with the writers. We've seen it a couple times with very subtle things like the last week. Let's just step back for a second. Last week, they mentioned the new uniforms that the Enterprise had. I thought that was a good way to to talk about the whole change in uniforms. Very subtle, very good. There was also a little brief moment in this episode where Burnham talked about the um, whatever happened that separated Spock and, and Burnham uh relationship so that they have not spoken in years so they're actually bringing up some of the things that fans have been worried about is why spock never talked about it joe you just mentioned that spock doesn't talk about his past there's been something that happened between the two so they don't see each other for years which may be another reason why spock doesn't talk about burnham or cyborg right bill who <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we just yeah it's it's spock just loves to play it close to the vast joe brings up a great point there um, I, I can't wait to see exactly what state he's in when we get there. Cause it, it strikes me a little bit like Sarek toward the end of his life. I wonder mm-hmm. if it's that kind of turmoil. I'm going to be really interested to see that. So one thing that I thought was interesting and I was trying to decide whether I thought it was a good thing or a bad thing in the episode was the settlers themselves, themselves. Terralicia, I guess, is the name of the of the settlement that the that they're on now. Jacob was the one that stood out to me. I really liked him, um, other than the others. But when we're talking about this group of people, let's also bring in the conversation about what I loved the reference of General Order One, the Prime Directive. Never even saying the Prime Directive, but um, of course, this entire episode I think um, focuses heavily on Pike's decision on what he's going to do with telling these people or not telling these people what's going on on earth with them, with their technology. I thought it was a great way to wrap up the episode when Pike showed up in that basement. Uh, Joe, what about you? Do you have any, any likes or dislikes about the whole argument about general order one in this episode? Well, I don't know that I agree with Pike that the prime directive applies here because Mm. these, these people are human. They were brought there against their will it's not like they set off to create some new society on their own uh the whole thing about well they're a pre-warp society are they really i mean they're 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 humans who were taken more or less uh 
against their will. Now, granted, they would have died if they weren't taken against their will, but I, I don't know that that applies here. And and I was a little surprised nobody argued that with Pike. Everybody's just like, oh, General Order 1, okay. <laughs> it's like nobody... That, Burnham said, well, there are kin, but that's the closest we got to an argument. That's, I've never actually thought of that, that the fact that they are human does General Order 1 actually... Is it something that we that they need to follow on this? What do you think, Bill? That's a great point, Joe. I, I'm kind of on the fence. I mean, I can see why Pike erred on the side of caution if that were the case. I mean, uh, but by the same token, who's to say these people wouldn't have come to it on their own as humans because humans do develop warp drive. Um, uh, granted, we know Zephram Cochran's not there, but I'm sure that he wasn't the only person that could have come up with this. So I, um, I, I guess I can see on the ground why Pike went that way, but I, I don't necessarily know that I agree that it was uh, applicable to the Prime Directive either. And, and if I could interject again, uh, I also am thinking of the short track we just saw with Saru. So when Jacob uh, demonstrated that he was aware of uh the the science and that the the beacon and all these things why did that not count as an exception of well we could at least take jacob because they they did it for saru i got nothing i love these discussions that's that's another great point that's why i love having guests that are smarter than bill or i on the show because we get to talk about things that we may not have thought of before uh that's a great that's a great point man at that point i was almost wondering if it was going to wind up like the episode first contact where, you know, they bring Jacob with him, with them, kind of like they brought Morass to Yale, um, uh, you know, up to the Enterprise at the end of that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of interested to see that that wasn't the case, that, you know, he essentially got his confirmation, you know, that, hey, yep, we're from outer space, but um, he wound up staying behind, which I thought was a more interesting decision. One of the things that I was concerned about at the end of the episode is after he got the, the everlasting battery power cell, and the and relit the church, and you saw the lights pouring out of the church, which I thought was a really cool effect. What ramifications is this going to have? Are we going to see this place later? Um, is there going to be any change in the development? Now we're talking about whether or not General Order One um, is valid for this this group of humans, but is there any significant change that we think could take place just for the fact that they were able to give them something that they can restart their uh, power on in the settlement? I don't know. Do you think we'll see it again? Well, I think you're lucky because I think Chris Pike left behind his book of Chicago mobs of the 20s. <laughs> so I, I, if nothing else, in 100 years time, we're going to return to a planet of gangsters, maybe. <laughs> uh, Joe, you please have something better than that one. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say I got nothing. <laughs> I, I, yeah, no. Uh, if, if anything, my answer would just be snarkier than Bill's. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're coming back to this place. I mean, there are enough okay. one-off worlds in Star Trek. Sure, uh, I, I have a feeling we're gonna add this one to the list, and I'm okay with it if that's if that's the ultimate answer. Um, right, because I don't know what value there is to coming back here. We know mm-hmm. what this planet's about. We know what these people are about. The mystery isn't this planet; it's the Red Angel. Exactly. Um, let's go back onto the ship for a little while, uh, shall we, guys? I want to talk about Tilly. And specifically, not not what she did, you know, with the asteroid and and the dark matter and that and and all of that, but her ghost friend. Um, uh, I actually thought for a quick moment that it might have been that alien that we saw in Short Treks and that she was surgically altered, but I threw that out the window pretty quickly. Um, here's here's what I'm thinking about that is we know from discussions that Tilly has had with Stamets that 
Stamets is able to see Hugh in the mycelial network, and Hugh is dead. We saw a piece of the mycelial network or something from the mycelial network land on her shoulder at the end of season one. Is she now communicating with this friend of hers from her childhood who the computer said was deceased? I think it's a very um, interesting concept of what she's going through. Is she just hallucinating or is she somehow now connected to the mycelial network? Joe, what do you think? That's very interesting. I didn't think of that. Uh, in fact, I have it written down under my long-range scans. I don't know if you want me to bring it up now, but I have a prediction as to who May was or what May was. Uh, but um, I, I, did, I forgot, honestly, about the, the, the piece that uh, landed on her in Season 1. I'll tell you, it did remind me. I don't know if either one of you were fans of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh yes, there absolutely! Was a tremendous episode of Buffy called "Conversations with Dead People," and that's the vibe I was getting yeah. from uh, from May. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. nice. That, that yeah. I, I think I'll have to go back and read some interviews. I believe Jonathan Frakes actually had something to say about what was going on with Tilly and this ghost run. And he referenced something that makes people think about that little stray thing that fell on her shoulder. Bill, do you think that that worked? That person that just showed up at one point, I'm like, okay, something's going on. She's not really there. I I thought it worked, especially if it's all tied to the mycelial network. What do you think? I think it works. I think it is tied to the mycelial network, and I'm gonna. I, I should have. I should put this in the long range scans because this is a prediction that's pretty bold. But I'm just gonna drop it here and blow your mind. I think that the Nexus ribbon from Star Trek Generations is actually the mycelial network. <laughs> that was my mind. <laughs> I think there's that possibility because you know a part of people stays in the Nexus, and we're finding that parts of people stay in the mycelial network. I mean, uh, obviously, I mean, that that's just a, a guess and a wing and a prayer on my part, but I see a lot of parallels here early on. So uh, is it is it not? I don't know, but I, I do think that it works, and I do think it's all related to everything that's going on. Well, let me ask you this then, and this will be uh, something that maybe our good friend Brandon Shamutalo will like. Will this make you like Generations more? No. <laughs> No, not remotely. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Oh, that's pretty good. I like that. That's pretty cool. Speaking of humor, since we all just had a little bit of a chuckle, let's talk about the humor that we saw in this week's episode. Now, last week, our guest Shashank Avaru talked about how the humor sometimes got to be a little heavy-handed, um, not only in the premiere, but in other episodes, especially when it came to Tilly. I thought personally that this week it really balanced out well. Uh, my one of my favorite moments of the entire episode was Pike's reaction to the spore jump. Not a, well, actually, let me step back. What he said before they jumped was really cool about how it's a starship flying on a field of mushrooms or whatever he said. I forget the exact quote, but I thought that was really good. But then his reaction after they jumped, and Saru just says, "Hey, you never forget your first time." I thought that was perfectly placed in this episode. I thought it really um, uh, showed that this crew in a short amount of time, is really bonded together. Uh, there were other moments, of course, with Tilly, like there always is. I just thought the balance was 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 spot on. Uh, Bill, what do you think? I think the balance is there with everybody but Tilly. 
Um, I, now, don't get me wrong. I love Mary Wiseman. I adore Tilly like like there's no tomorrow. But I feel like at this point of the season, they're specifically trying to make the character bring the episode levity. And it doesn't always need to be that way. Yes, she is different in how she approaches problems. Yes, she is you know different with the way she interacts with people. But I don't always think that it needs to be a laugh line. Um, a, a subtle example is when Tilly leaves sickbay to head to the bridge and she heads the wrong way down the corridor and then the camera stays right. there and then she heads mm-hmm. the opposite way back down the corridor. Necessary? No. Funny? Yes. And I think that humor was much more subtle than some of the other things they've tried to do with Tilly this season. I thought it was funny. We, I've seen a little bit of, of discussion online this week in the last couple of days when she's sitting there talking to herself in sickbay or standing there pacing around. She talks about a rice and Mai Tai. And people were wondering whether they she meant the poison or the planet. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought that was pretty good. Um, I think it's the planet, people. I just, think it is, too. throwing that yeah. out there. Yeah, uh, Joe, what do you think about the humor? Now, we haven't gotten your opinion on what you think about the humor uh, as a whole in Star Trek Discovery. So let's start with that, and then let's talk about this week's episode a little bit. Well, you know, honestly, we could do a whole episode just on the humor in Star Trek Discovery because I've noticed online one of the complaints is that it hasn't been humorous enough from season one. And now with season two, they're saying they're trying to make it more humorous. Uh, in fact, some people have been saying they're trying to capture the, the audience for the Orville. I completely disagree. I think Star Trek has always had humor. I think Absolutely. season one had a lot of humor. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. think that humor being added to Discovery this season is a new thing. I think it, it's always been there. And... Um, to respectfully disagree with your uh, guest from last week, I, I love Tilly, and I've ne- there's never been a moment where I've been like, well, they've gone too far with Tilly. I, I just she makes me laugh and or, or or at least smile all the time. She's like a a ray of sunshine on that ship. I I, I just I I love her, and um, I I've seen people. I think she's a love it or hate it character because I've seen people this season comparing her to Wesley Crusher a lot online and I think it's love it or hate it. And I think most people love her, but the ones who don't really don't like her. It's interesting because at the beginning of a couple episodes into discovering Trek last year, after the first few episodes of discovery, we talked about Tilly and how much we, we love the character because she's an, she's her innocence really shines through, especially in season one. And we're going to have people in real life that are like her, those, that awkwardness so that they act a little bit different and and maybe try to throw some humor into things. I think it's a great representation of the real world with this character. I love what she does. I think um, she is a brilliant actress and I really appreciate the humor that she brings to the episode. I haven't, and I, I have to say, I didn't say this last week, with what Shashank had said, I don't necessarily agree that it's too much for her. I do agree with what Bill says that sometimes it doesn't need to be placed where it is and it doesn't need to happen, but it's not overdoing it for me. I, I think it's really, like you just said, it's a ray of sunshine uh, in the show. And especially last year where, yeah, people, there was humor. You needed that. They're in the middle of a war. You need that humor when you're in that dark time. So I thought it worked good. Bill, what do you think, man, as we get back to it? Yeah, no, I, I think that, I think it definitely w- was strategic last season. I have, I think humor in Star Trek is essential because there's humor in mm-hmm. life. I don't like Joe. I don't think it's a, it's an attempt to uh, woo over people from the Orville. Uh, I think that, you know, the people who are going to watch the Orville, you know, are either going to watch discovery or not. And that's up to them. Uh, the Orville is a fine show. It's found an audience. I'm, I'm very happy for that. It's not for me. I tried it, 
but uh, Discovery is is doing what Star Trek has always done, and I think it's doing it well for the most part. Well, gentlemen, this is the time where we're going to reflect on those who we've lost in this week's episode of Star Trek. Uh, it's the somber part of the show, and uh, we feel it's the least we can do for those who have paid the ultimate price. We like to call it the red shirt roll call. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. Well, Bill, this this doesn't happen very often, man, uh, especially on Discovery. As a matter of fact, I think it's only the second time we've ever been in this situation, buddy. Dan, you're absolutely right. For only the second time in the history of Discovering Trek, we have no names added to the red shirt roll call this week. It is a fine day in the fleet, my friend. <laughs> We're going to celebrate exploration as usual. We're going to celebrate a job well done, but fear not. We're sure that there's plenty of carnage yet to come in season two. I mean, it is Star Trek Discovery after all. <laughs> That's true. It's a little morbid that I'm kind of bummed out that there's nobody to talk about in the redshirt roll call. <laughs> I, I'd, like, I'd like to nominate someone, yeah. May Ahern. We just we just learned this week that uh, she is deceased. That's true. We did just learn about her. So technically, we're going to put her on the roll call with a star next to her name. <laughs> Because um, she is, in fact, you know, uh, post-mortem, and um, we will uh, we'll absolutely pour one out for her. All right. Well, you know what? I, with that being said, I'm not one to give up a good glass of synthahol. So let's raise that glass anyway and remember those that we have lost before this week's episode in this week's Red Shirt Roll Call. This week's episode is brought to you by Fansets, the exclusive sponsor for Discovering Trek. And, you know, we are just thrilled to have them back for another full season. You all have to check out their amazing line of pins at fansets.com. And I tell you what, they're going to have at least four new Star Trek pins coming out in the next two months. Uh, and half of those are going to be Discovering pins, including, uh, and this is this is no word of a lie, the USS Enterprise. Oh. And Disco Prize. Yeah, the Disco Prize <laughs> and Mirror Landry, which I'm very excited about. We are big Rekha Sharma fans and we love this pin. So head on over to their site and put a bunch of pins or maybe even pin accessories into your shopping cart. And at checkout, be sure to enter this week's exclusive checkout code. It's New Eden. That's N E W E D E N, all capital letters, no spaces. Do that and you're going to get 15% off your entire order at fansets.com this week. Now, this code is only going to be available to use through Sunday, February 3rd, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern. I'll still be up celebrating Super Bowl victory. I'm just going to say that right now. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) in addition to all those pins coming out that Bill just talked about over the next two months, please keep your ears and your eyes open for information on the release of the Star Trek Discovery Season 2 Episode Pin Collection. We're going to be sure to let you know when the first pins of this special series are launched and available at fansets.com. Fansets, we are Star Trek. And as always, we thank our friends at Fansets for being our exclusive sponsor for the entire second season of Discovering Trek. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. You know, Star Trek has always been a reflection of our times. And in this segment, we'll take a look at what this episode helps us discover about our humanity or perhaps even what it tells us about ourselves. 
Now, we said at the beginning of of this uh, podcast that this may be one of the most Star Trek stories we've seen in a very, very long time. So I am sure that both of you guys have some interesting things to say as we talk about humanity. So, Bill, let's start with you, man. What do you have for us this week? Oh, no pressure. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, I, it's been a, a couple of days since this episode has come out, and I've, I've been asking myself a lot of questions in this time, trying to come up with something for this segment. And ultimately, I'm left with one question. It's that, is there room for science and faith? You know, Gene Roddenberry famously was a secular humanist, and honestly, we haven't seen this much religion in Star Trek since Deep Space Nine. But it begs the question, is there room for a peaceful coexistence of science and faith? And I'm going to be the first to admit, I have no idea. I mean, personally, I'm an atheist. Previously in my life, I've been a lapsed Catholic and a Jehovah's Witness. So I see both sides of this. But I ultimately have to say I don't know because, you know, you take Burnham in the episode. She's saying, well, you know, what if your faith is science? And I think that that's a viable you know, point of view to come from. But ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, I, I think what it tells me in humanity is that this question exists for a lot of people. You know, science, we've, we're always told that science is science and faith is faith. And, you know, at times those two camps will, will get pretty contentious with each other. But I'm going to be the first to step up and say, I have absolutely no idea, Dan. Uh, okay. Um, I, I got nothing. Um, I'm going to let Joe uh, take his piece uh, for what he thought about what this uh, episode brought up, and then I'll uh, I'll wrap it up with mine. Nice job, man. I think it's obvious what this episode was trying to teach us. I, I can't believe you guys didn't see it because I just think it's totally obvious. But it's, you know, when you're in the, uh, the uh, docking bay alone, you just don't go chipping off pieces of a, of a you know, <laughs> of a giant asteroid. You don't do that. Uh, but no, actually, in all seriousness, I was going to actually say the same thing Bill said. I think it's it's definitely a, a faith versus science, and is there room for both? And I'll tell you, to 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 some, what I'm going to say may sound controversial, but but I don't see why the two can't work together, because if you believe God created the universe, and if you believe that the Parker brothers created Monopoly, okay, Monopoly comes with an instruction sheet of how the game works. That's science. So let's say God is the Parker Brothers. He created Monopoly and gave you the instruction sheet, and that is science. <laughs> I love it. I, you know, especially coming from somebody like me that you know has no real dog in the fight per se. I, I think that I think you bring up a great point there and put it so so simply that uh, I, I totally understand where you're going with it, man. I, I don't. I don't even know where to begin uh, for my comments. You know, there were so many examples that I could reference in this episode for this particular segment, but I keep coming back to the same scene, and that's the stained glass window. Uh, these people have been living in the Beta Quadrant for generations, and they believe that Earth has been destroyed. They needed to find a way to come together as a community and live together to survive. Um, this episode deals with so many aspects of different religions and nothing showed that more than the stained glass when burnham revealed the different religious symbols you had christianity you had judaism islam there were others thrown in there and i thought that really really struck us it, it struck a strong chord with me uh you see people we can have different beliefs and we can have different ideals and we still can live in peace and harmony uh maybe we should look to this episode to learn a thing or two 
you know, gatekeepers have bitched and complained that Discovery is too dark with the war last season, and there's no place in Star Trek for things like Section 31. And I 100% disagree. We still deal with humans in Trek, and even in the future, I think we will still have our failings. This episode shows why Star Trek is the pinnacle for human optimism and the ability to make us better humans, even when we're surrounded by dark and unpleasant circumstances. I literally had chills going down my spine as a stained glass scene unfolded because it's a perfect message that we can all live and work together for a common good and amen to the writers for making this shine through like a beacon of light in a world full of such darkness, both now and in the 23rd century. Commendations, palm leaf of Axanar Peace Mission, Grand Kite Order of Tactics, Class of Excellence, Frenteris Ribbon of Commendation. All right, boys, let's let's give some awards out. Uh, what did you pick this week for your Starfleet commendations uh, for this episode? Joe, let's start with you. Uh, two or three things, uh, whatever you want, the floor is yours. I have three things. The first thing I have is the whole scene with Tilly and Sick Bay with May. I thought that was a great scene. I loved watching Tilly kind of just uh, riff and figure out, you know, what's going on while bouncing off uh, her ghostly friend. I thought that was a lot of fun. (laughs) Uh, The second thing I have is Detmer. Uh, Although I loathe to agree with online trolls, um, sometimes, you know, a broken clock's right twice a day. Uh, This character (laughs) never gets any dialogue, never gets to do anything. And I felt like, wow, she spoke. She did something. And I want to see more of her. I want to all all the background characters. I want to see them all explored more. So I was very happy to see her have something to do um, this week. And the last thing I have is uh, I'm going to you already brought it up, Dan, but I'll give you the full quote. If you're telling me that this ship can skip across the galaxy on a highway full of mushrooms, I kind of got to go on faith. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great line. Donuts in a starship, guys. <laughs> See, now, now I want donuts. <laughs> that, and 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 just you you said something this isn't part of my accommodations but i just wanted to to comment on what you said joe that's one of the things that i'm liking so much so far about season two is the bridge crew has had more dialogue in these two episodes and more backstory than the entirety of the first season and i think that's fantastic it really works well detmer got her license when she was 12 and and now she's doing donuts on a starship i think it i thought i thought it was great i loved it for me, I think uh, this is going to be happening over and over again this year, at least as long as he's on the show. Anson Mount, I mean, this portrayal that he's doing of Pike is so much more than I expected. He wrestles with moral dilemmas. You can see the gears turning in his head as he tries to decide what's best, even knowing how important General Order 1 is to him in the Federation. But he listens to his crew. He appreciates their opinions on the situation. And uh, uh, I think that he already deserves an Emmy for what he's done in just these two episodes. Um, also want to give out a commendation to Mr. Jonathan Frakes. This guy just continues to blow me away with his di- directorial genius. Uh, we've seen it so many times on Trek uh, and non-Trek. And last season's episode he did, it was just phenomenal. But this one, this was the big one for him. And watching the behind-the-scenes videos that have come out while he was directing this episode makes me just love the guy even that much more. And uh, finally for me, guys, is the story. This is what Star Trek is all about. 
There are so many things that made both my wife and I say this is Star Trek while we were watching New Eden. The moral dilemmas, the religious connotations, the difficult decisions. Will this benefit the settlers? Will it won't? What's right? What's wrong? I love the continuity tie-in with World War III as well because we've heard um, that this that World War III took place prior to uh, the invention of warp drive. And then they actually gave us a date, 2053. 10 years before first contact with Zephyrin Cochran. And uh, for and I just love how the writers are doing this. And I could just go on and on. But I'll stop there, Bill. <laughs> you know, it's really easy to keep going on and on. Honestly, while you were going on and on, I actually added two more commendations that aren't in the outline for this week. So, I mean, uh, the more I think about this episode, the more I think of how many great parts and pieces there are to it. And first up, I have to say, without a doubt, Commendation to Sean Cochran and Vaughn Wilmot. I mean, the, the writers of this particular episode, they deliver a fantastic script that ranks right up there with classic Star Trek. Uh, Sean, I know occasionally you check out this podcast from time to times. Uh, thank you so much for doing so, but uh, do me a favor and grab Vaughn's iPhone and download this podcast for him so that he can hear it too. Um, secondly, Jonathan Frakes. You know, the beard always delivers, and this episode is no exception. Um, I think that this is the kind of episode you want with somebody like a Jonathan Frakes or an Olatunde Osunsanme or somebody like that that understands the fabric of both Discovery and the Star Trek universe overall. Uh, third, I got to say, I got to give it up for Star Trek fans this week. You know, there's mm. a lot of love for this episode online, people talking about it, people sharing their thoughts about the episode. Uh, apparently, uh, the season premiere is now available for free to watch on YouTube. CBS has put it out there to sort of drum up interest, and people are talking about that. So big kudos to everybody talking about Discovery, um, because I think uh, in the last week alone, I've heard of at least, no lie, a dozen people who are brand new to Discovery and have binged season one to catch up to last uh, or Thursday's episode. Awesome. And then lastly, I got to say, the bridge crew. You know, Joe brought up a good point. We've learned more about Detmer in 30 seconds of scene than we have in the entirety of season one. And we're learning more about the bridge crew in general. I mean, Owo gets to go on the uh, the landing party this week. You know, mm -hmm. I have a feeling that we're going to see more. Arium's got dialogue, which didn't really happen in season one, which is exciting. Right. The more I learn about this crew, the more that I'm bonding with them. And, and they are becoming, you know, the, the kind of Starship crew I would hope for. So, Dan, those are my commendations this week. I like them. Nice job all around, guys. We, got, we give a lot of commendations out on this show, and that's not really a bad thing. Long-range scan of planet complete. Okay. <laughs> I laugh because I laugh. Long-range scans. Um, I got nothing, guys. I, re I really don't. My head's spinning after watching this one. It still is. Initially, I was thinking maybe the Red Angel was Culber's escape from death and the Mycelial Network. Nope. He showed up in 2053, so that's not him. I I that's just dumb on my part now. I don't know. I guess what I'm going to go with is, is kind of a softball. We've seen Saru as acting captain. We've seen him get the troops rounded up and, and really want to do what is right for him and the Federation. We've seen him be in charge of the ship when Pike decides to go on a landing party, which doesn't happen later in Star Trek, but still does now. He's going to become the captain of Discovery. That's my long-range scan this week, guys. That's all I got. Bill? Well, you know... This is always a fun part of the show for me because uh, I get this so wrong so often. Uh, last week's, I, I'm, I'm convinced, is one we should put down in pen. And this week's, I, I've given a little more consideration to. And I'm going to present it this way. So back when Star Trek Enterprise was canceled, mm 
Brandon Braga said sometime after that, that future guy was ultimately supposed to be Captain Jonathan Archer, which I think would have been a mind blowing, you know, sort of plot development if Enterprise had continued on for seven seasons. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think the Red Angel is Michael Burnham. I don't know how, I don't know why, but I just, I don't know, something in my gut says maybe it's Burnham, which explains the tie to Spock. That's just my gut feeling right now. Um, that's what I got. Yeah, um, uh, no. <laughs> if that is the case, dude, I, I, I'm i going to have CBS hire you to do a show on the Red Angel. I Now, I, I would like to point out that I was 99.9% <laughs> wrong the entirety of season one of Discovery. I am most likely wrong with this, but it's just, uh, that's what I got. That's that's what I love about this show and talking about Discovery is we can get ideas that nobody would have ever thought in a generation. I would like to know if anybody else has thought that. And I'm not trying to, I'm not picking on you or, or making fun of you. It's an unbelievable long range scan. And if something like that happens, mine will be blown. Joe, what do you got for your long range scan this week? Well, first of all, I thought Bill was going to say uh, that the Red Angel was Jonathan Archer and that they were going to tie it back to <laughs> its future guy. Well, that's uh, possible, too. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay, first of all, the fir- my, my, I got a couple long-range scans. My first one is a, more or less a, a joke. Uh, my wife, uh, I've been introducing her this past year to Babylon 5. She never watched Babylon 5. And at the end of the episode, she turned to me and said, well, it's obvious who the Red Angels are. It's the Vorlons. So, <laughs> so that made me laugh. Uh, the the two I have in in uh, I think uh, May Ahern. I think we're going to find out May Ahern is a Red Angel, or, or maybe not. May Ahern is a Red Angel, but I think it's a Red Angel that was taking her her form, her shape in six. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yep. Okay. Right. Uh, and the other one, and I'm probably going to be way off on this, and I'm probably going to make a lot of fans angry because I know fans absolutely despise uh, Star Trek V. But, you know, love it or hate it, it is part of the canon. And what do we know about Spock's brother, Cybok? He was on a search for God. And now we have Spock missing and this whole faith versus science thing and these angels. I would like to see them tie it into Cybok in, in, the, in the end. I love, I love, I love I like that. That's, you know, I was just sitting here mouth agape. You know, you're a hundred percent right. That's uh that's really cool. That I, I don't think they will. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> that long range scans. You heard them here first. The, they're the most out there long range scans we've had in the history of discovering Trek, And I love both of them. Mine sucked. Yours were awesome. Nice job, guys. Well, that's why we'll probably be right in the end, because they are so out there. We, we could even tie it in and say that that's why Spock grew a beard. He was trying to emulate his brother. <laughs> oh, that would make all the canonistas just have their heads explode. All right, guys. So great discussion, uh, as always, on Discovering Trek. Um, we still have 12 episodes to go in the season. So we got lots to talk about. So, Bill, what do we have coming up next week on Star Trek Discovery and on Discovering Trek? 
Dan, next week we'll consider the third outing of Star Trek Discovery's second season, an episode titled Point of Light, and we'll be joined by our dear friend Haley Stoddard from Trek FM's Standard Orbit podcast. Until then, remember that you can subscribe to Discovering Trek by searching for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or by heading right on over to discoveringtrek.com and wherever you listen. We'd love it if you'd rate and review the show. That will help other Star Trek Discovery fans find us. Plus, now you can support the newly formed Trek Geeks Network, by subscribing to bonus content via Patreon. There you can see our special annual supporters pin from Fansets, our Podfleet t-shirt, and get special access to us on Discord. Plus, there's so many other perks. There's all the perks all the time. To find out more, to support our podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash trekgeeks. Dan. Well, Crazy Joe, man, like we said at the beginning of the show, it, it took a long time to get you here. We finally were able to. It was an awesome discussion. We want to thank you so much for being here with us. Where can people find you online, uh, my good friend? Well, Megapodtastic.com. I host the Megapodtastic podcast and the Megapodtastic YouTube channel, which is at YouTube.com slash Megapodtastic. And, uh, yeah, you can find me in both of those places. The YouTube channel has lately been more active than the podcast, mainly because I can do that easier on my own. I just point a camera at myself, and, uh, and we've had a co-host situation over on the podcast. So we're, we're, we're taking auditions for co-hosts. If you would like to be a co-host of Megapodtastic, send me an email at megapodtastic at gmail.com, and maybe you could co-host the show with me and my wife. Nice. That's awesome. Well, thank you for being here. We look forward to having you again on really soon. Well, folks, that's it for us and our discussion on New Eden. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter to let us know about what you thought about New Eden, as well as about this episode of Discovering Trek. You know, I, for one, believe that this is shaping up to be an amazing season with interesting twists and turns. And we are just so humbled that you all take time out of your busy schedules to listen to us talk about it. We look forward to sitting down again next week to talk about episode three and what the next chapter of this mystery has in store for us. Until then, here are some words of wisdom from Captain Christopher Pike. Be bold. Be brave. Be courageous. And until next week, never stop discovering. Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks. Executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com. <laughs>